What's happening, y'all? This is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. Today's guest will be talking all things foster care and adoption. Dr. Sharon Ford is the Director for Foster Care and Adoption at Focus on the Family. She helps raise awareness of the need for adoptive families to provide loving and stable homes for children in the U.S. foster care system through Focus on the Family's Wait No More program. She also makes post-placement resources available for adoptive families. Prior to her current role, Dr. Ford worked for Child Welfare Services at the Colorado State Department of Human Services. She is also the former president of the National Association of State Adoption Programs. I wouldn't be mad if this episode inspires you to explore foster care or adoption for your family. And as always, remember, there is no such thing as a Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Free Black Thought Podcast episode on all things adoption, foster care. I think it's a really important topic and one that I think a lot of people think they know or understand a lot about, but maybe there's a lot of misunderstandings. I'm sure you know in your line of work because you're heavily involved in this world how often people um, don't understand exactly how the foster care system works don't understand how adoption works exactly, don't understand all the different types of adoption, don't understand all the different types of foster parenting that's out there. And so Sharon, we're just so glad to have you on tonight or today to talk about all that stuff and maybe 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 encourage some folks to pursue or explore adoption or foster care who maybe weren't thinking about it before they hear this interview. But to, to start off, let's just learn a little bit about you. Tell us what you do, how you got to be involved in this line of work and the organization that you work for. Well, Connie, first of all, thank you for having me on your program today. I greatly appreciate this, being able to um, share my voice in this space. And so I am the director of foster care and adoption at Focus on the Family, which is a um, international nonprofit um, that really um, engages in the space of family, evangelism, parenting, advocating for children, And how do I get into this space? Well, you know, I worked 30 years in state government before coming to my current position. And I worked in the division of child welfare. And I was working with child protective issues initially. And there was um, these two women who sat across from me and they were involved in our adoption program. And I would listen to them talk about children who were going to be able to be placed for adoption and children who were not going to be placed for adoption because they had some imperfection. And some of the imperfections, um, interestingly enough, they were not blonde-haired and they were not blue-eyed. They were not the blue-ribbon baby, as they called them. Um, Children who were children of color, um, children who were had any disability, any abnormality, um, those children were going to wait and not have a forever family. And I was like, wait a minute, there shouldn't be the have and the have nots when it comes to an infant um, who needs a mom, who needs a dad, who wants to grow up as a part of a family. And so um, I continued in my career at state government doing many things. Eventually I got into the moved from child protection into the foster care portion of the program and adoption and really got to lean into that space um, heavily and got to interact with our young kids 
who were um, in foster care, listening to their voices, their stories about how the system had failed them, that child welfare took them from their families, and and then they aged out of, were aging out of the foster care system. They we didn't find a forever family for them. That we hadn't done our job, and that message hurt. Was it a true message? Yes, and and that message hurt, and so it just awakened something in me that I needed to do everything that I could to help raise awareness about the need for children wherever they came from, whether they are a blue ribbon baby or not, that those children all needed a chance to be in family. Children of every hue of color, every age, they needed moms, they needed dads. And where were they? And we needed to find them because I really believe that the people don't aren't aware about the kids in our in the United States who don't have a home. So they come into child welfare. There's 400,000 children across the nation who are in the foster care system. And of that 400,000, 110,000 of those children are today available for adoption. And if families don't come, those children will age out of the foster care system. And it's not their fault. We just didn't do, and I hear me saying we, I'm not, I don't, I don't work in child welfare anymore, but it's hard to shake loose of something you did for all those many years. We haven't finished doing our job. And if those children who are now young adults get adopted at 18 or 20 or 22 or 25, that's what they need. They still need at 25, even at 30, even at 40, they need a mom. They need a dad. They want family. And um, we as caring, loving adults, we have an opportunity to step into that. And I always ask people, what is your role? What is your yes? What has God called you to do in the space of making a difference in the lives of vulnerable children? That's how I got where I am. And we're definitely going to get to some of the things that you just mentioned, like Blue Ribbon Baby. We got to dig into that a little bit. But I want to first make sure that our, our audience understands all that focus on the family does. You know, you are a specific department or mission set for focus on the family. Can you talk about just kind of briefly overall the resources that focus on the family provide people, whether they're interested in adoption or foster care or not? I think focus on the family has a a breadth and depth of information um, and services for um, our, just the general constituent out there. I want to talk about our broadcast ministry, which is just awesome. It, uh, we have guests on from all walks of life, moms and dads, single individuals, con- congressional individuals, uh, public servants, pastors and, and pastors' wives, um, l- leaders, firefighters, just every Joe, everyday Joe Blow, moms and dads who are, who are just being, you know, learning how to parent and, and, and walk the walk and talk the talk. And so those individuals come on the broadcast and share their story. Many of them are authors who have written books. And so we're not only sh- they're sharing their story, but they're also talking about the books that they've written and how those books have been a part of their journey and how sharing their journey might help somebody else in their journey. We have our marriage program and boy, it is such a robust aspect of the ministry. You know, there are many hurting people out there and they're married to each other. And so we, one of the things we know about hurting people is they hurt, hurting people hurt others. And when you're two people in a, in a marriage and you're hurting, 
Boy, there needs to be an opportunity for you to get healing. And one of the parts of our ministry is our Hope Restored, where couples can come together, one for either a getaway, which is a short weekend, or they can come to a, a week-long intensive to work on their marriage with a licensed, mastered-level clinical social worker who they do individual work, they do group work, they pray together, they journal, they talk face-to-face, they they talk um, individually with the therapist, with the counselor, they come back together. There's other couples like them who are going through those kinds of situations and they can hear themselves as like, well, I thought we were bad. Listen to them. Then they work through their issues and there is a post services after they go back home. It's not like, Oh, bye. Thank you. You came to the intensive. It's okay. Everything's going to be fixed. No, it is a journey towards healing, but they got this really deep invested time together during that week-long intensive, and then stepping away and going back home, sometimes going back home to different homes, houses, as they work through their issues to regain um, and remind that, that, that fire that was on the inside of them that said, this is the woman I was supposed to be married to. This is the man that's supposed to be my husband, and that they work through their issues um, and we have a wonderful, wonderful recid- low rate of recidivism where families really do. Families who are on the, the brink of a do- divorce tear up the divorce papers and reunite and reconnect and, and their marriages are saved. And it's it was time. Um, they just needed to do the work. And they came to our intensives to be able to do that. We have our parenting program. Boy, it's not easy being a parent today, as you probably well know. Um, whether you're parenting littles with strong little attitudes or you're parenting those teenagers with quick whip and and lots of mouth and, and being sassy, boy, we need to know how to love on our, our young people, keep engaged with them, have conversations with them. And Dr. Danny Huerta is our over our um, parenting program, and he... <laughs> He has teens himself, and so he's always leaning into that space and, and talking about how you, you know, about being a good parent, about being a good father. Um, and even if you're not in the home, how you still have to be engaged with your children because of the parenting responsibility. If you shirk it, if you don't do it, somebody else will do it for you, and then you'll have to live with the outcomes. And so we want um, young people to know that they are valuable, that their parents love them. One of the things that we we try to focus on that about is bring your Bible to school. We want young people who are engaged in their own community, in their own faith walk, to share their faith with um, kids that they go to school with. And so during this certain time of the year, we have Bring Your Bible to School Day, and we have lots of promotions about that. And we have those young people sharing their stories about how they shared their faith with their classmates, with people in the the school building. Um, And what a powerful message. Because you know what? When and the day ends, it's all about who are you? How do you see yourself? And our parenting ministry is about helping our kids to see themselves through the eyes of God and not in the eyes of things that are going on in the street, not, not in Facebook, not in TikTok, because those things will lead you into a different direction. Another aspect of our ministry is our uh, under Advocacy for Children, which is the division that I'm in, we have a post-rose strategy, and I could talk all day about that. 
you know, now that um, Roe versus Wade has been overturned, our, we have um, option ultrasound. In an option ultrasound, we have the privilege of working with pregnancy resource centers all across the United States and, ha and working with them to put in machines so that young women who, who believe that they are pregnant can come in and get an ultrasound. And those ultrasound machines are handled by trained, skilled nurses that can run the machine and have that young woman leave with an image of, of their ultrasound and that they can, um, that pregnancy resource center wants to speak life, not only to that mom, but also to the baby in that mom's womb and to walk alongside her irrespective of what her choice is. If she chooses life, praise God. If she chooses another direction, okay, that's a hard choice. We, that pregnancy resource center still wants to walk alongside her in whatever decision that she makes. And not just her, and not just the baby, but also the father of that child, because he's an important factor in that too. They are a family, whether they're acting like one or not. Um, we want the pregnancy resource centers wants to be there for them. And it's not just about save the baby. It's about working with that birth mom, working with that birth father. And if they choose life and want to make a plan for adoption, that pregnancy resource center is there to serve them as well, to walk alongside them, to connect them with community resources. And if they choose an adoption plan, to connect them with a life-affirming, faith-based adoption agency that will walk with them, hear what they have to say, and help them get connected to a prospective adoptive family who will love on their child, even though they, they aren't able to be the parent every day. And then, of course, there's our my program, which is Wait No More, which is foster care and adoption. And we have two aspects of our program. One, um, our Wait No More online program, which is a, a um, trusted resource in everything foster care, everything adoption. And so getting started in, in being a foster parent, whether you um, serve a foster parent, kinship care, adoption from foster care, our, on, our online um, website has robust information. And by the way, you can get to that website by going to waitnomore.org and the, all that information is there. And then our second program for, for Wait No More is our suitcase bundle program. Our suitcase bundle program um, looks as, at, at an opportunity to serve kids in foster care with dignity. We have given out, and over the last couple of years, over 25,000 brand new suitcase bundles. When I say a suitcase bundle, it's a 30-inch duffel bag. It contains a stuffed teddy bear, a soft plush teddy bear, an age-appropriate Bible, and in the front of that Bible is a label with a handwritten note to that young person with a line on it that says, put that child's name there, put that youth's name there. But there's a message from someone who has been praying over that Bible, praying over that bundle. And that's a free gift, a free gift to that young person. No child should walk around um, from moving from their home to a foster home or foster home to foster home with their things in a black trash bag. Every child deserves dignity and respect and focus on the family just wants our young children, our, our young adults 
our adolescents who are involved in the foster care system to know that somebody else cares about them, that we engage with donors to be able to make that a free gift, not used, not used resources, but brand new suitcase bundle for that young person. Gosh, so many wonderful things and so many awesome topics. I, I personally found focus on the family because I'm one of those people raising littles. And there was a point where I was pulling my hair out and I just was Googling things. I don't even know what topic I searched first, if it was weaning the baby or colic, colic baby or something like that. And that's how I found focus on the family. And now it's, I could almost bookmark the page because I use it so much. So it's a wonderful thing. I just wanted to make sure that our audience knew it's not just adoption that focus on the family does all kinds of resources. Literally, if you have a question like what is, what is biblical discipline look like? You could go to focus on the family and there'll be resources and opinions and oftentimes studies and data cited as well. So wonderful, wonderful resource for anybody in any stage of having a family, really. You know, Connie, we also have a counseling center. And so people can call in 1-800-A-FAMILY and ask to speak to one of our counselors on staff. Now, they're not going to carry them as a caseload. They're not going to become their client, but they will be able to speak with a trained and um, um, counselor, and that counselor will look for a counselor in their state, you know, within driving distance from them, and so they'll be able to be prayed for, information, they'll be able to provide them with resources and point them in a direction to have access to a counselor that's in their community for ongoing follow-up services. And so when they call in to 1-800-A-FAMILY, there's no charge. The things that our ministry does, we do it on donor dollars to be able to serve families and their children in the community where they reside. It's truly an amazing organization. But, okay, let's go back to how we opened up Blue Ribbon Baby. So I have a, I have a friend, and I told you about this a little bit before we, we started this interview. I have a friend. She's a white lady. She's married to a white guy. They're looking into adoption now. And at kind of their orientation, they were told basically that frequently couples are looking for a baby of a certain ethnic background, but most frequently white. I think because, and you can correct me, we can get into this too later, the majority of the couples that are adopting are white couples. So they're looking for a kid that looks like them. This person doing the orientation actually said that he has seen on multiple occasions couples show up to the hospital turns out daddy of the baby wasn't who mom thought it was baby comes out the baby's not white the baby's clearly mixed with something and even after all the prep and all the excitement couples will walk away and be like this is not what i this is not what we signed up for which to me is even you've already emotionally invested so much and you still can say no so and when she told me that i was just like wow you know because i see a lot of white families that adopt kids that don't look like them I've seen black families adopt kids that don't look like them. So how, how, where did that blue ribbon baby term come from? And how much of a problem is that? Is it getting better? Are people caring less about this? What, you've got your finger more on the pulse than I do. How have things changed maybe even since you first heard about it, the blue ribbon baby to today? Well, that was back in the early 1990s that I, that term of blue ribbon baby was being discussed I don't think that there's so much that term out there today. I do understand about a family who has been presented with one set of information 
about who the birth mother is, how she came to find herself um, in an unplanned pregnancy, and you know who she believes the father might be, and to get to the hospital and to find out that the child is um, potentially um, a child of mixed race. If you're not prepared for that, I think that the agency missed an opportunity to educate that couple about these are some of the these are the some of the what ifs, and by asking broad questions but deep questions about tell me about your willingness to be a parent. What motivates? Motivation is so critical. What is your motivation to parent? And in that motivation to parent, talk about the kind of you know the child that you would feel that you are most equipped to to parent. And it's the responsibility of the agency to say there's a chance, you know, by because they spend lots of time, hopefully, with that young prospective mom um, and collecting all of her medical information, and hopefully collecting information about the bio dad, um, her own background. Um, she might have had um, heritage herself of, of someone in her family, um, a grandmother might have been a person of color. And even though she's very fair-skinned herself, and maybe her mother's fair-skinned, you don't know when that olive tone, that melon's going to come out in your family. Um, I, I know that personally by my own family history. And so um, having that robust and honest conversation with that prospective couple helps them to be prepared for the what-ifs. And that worker should have known in advance if that family said, I, we are only interested in a full, fully Caucasian child. And um, that worker would have went to the hospital, hopefully um, at the birth herself, you know, himself or herself to know um, about the child's um, skin color so that that could have been, that family could have been spared that. That was hard. That I mean, how heartbreaking that is for that family, how heartbreaking it is for that young woman who's thinking that she's selected a family after looking at all these families by looking at, you know, being presented with family after family, and she selected them for her child and for them to let her down like that. That's heartbreaking. It really is, and heartbreaking for other parents that would have taken the child. You know, there's a waiting list a mile long of people who want to adopt Yes, so there if, is. If it's a if it's a couple that says, "Look, we don't care. We we want a baby. We'll take whatever baby." If maybe they're a white couple, they're like, "We'll take mm -hmm. an Asian baby. We'll take a mixed baby. Mm -hmm. We'll take a whatever baby." What would you? What do they need to do to prepare? Other than just being mentally ready to to take home whatever baby you know they end up matching with, or whatever mom they end up matching with. Are there other things that like a, a white family needs to do to prep for adopting a a black baby? What would you What would you advise them? Connie, to be honest, children need parents, individuals who are going to love them and nurture them and care for them, who are going to be their number one advocate, irrespective of whether they're a white child, a transracial child, child with other abilities. And so having that family be very clear about what their, again, that motivation, what is your motivation for adopting? And what are, what are, what are your own, what, how do you see your own weaknesses? How do you see your own strengths, your capacity? It, I think it takes extra capacity for a family to say, I'm willing to parent a child who is a mixed race child. 
I'm willing to parent a child who has differing abilities because that means you're pulling on, ad on additional resources, um, educating yourself. Boy, if you have a child who's medically involved, you, you, you need to be talking to how might that impact their education, their learn, their ability to learn, their ability to play. You're going to be spending more time maybe in the PD with the pediatrician. So having those conversations with them, if there's any kind of information that lets you know that that child might have some medical issues, you're going to be wanting to spend time with, with physician, physicians to collect that information. And you need to know whether you have the capacity to do that or not. That That's that introspective thinking and, and, and having that, that dialogue, you know, outward and inward dialogue about that. Families who are, are thinking, boy, can I really parent a child who's of, of mixed race? Because um, you, you don't get to pass on your white privilege to your mixed race child. I mean, at one, at, when they're young, yes, but once they get older, you don't, that privilege doesn't transfer to them. And how are you going to advocate for your son? How are you going to advocate for your daughter? And advocacy looks different for a son than it does a daughter, uh, particularly if that's a brown child, you know. And um, dad, what are you going to do when your your um, son says something to your wife <laughs> that you don't particularly care for? That's st He's still your son. And yes, she is your wife. And so how do you balance that? I, I think that there needs to be opportunities for role-playing, opportunities for courageous conversations. I think there needs to be opportunity for a navigate, having a cultural navigator. And what I mean by cultural navigator, if you're adopting a child or fostering a child from another culture, who, who in your circle of love and circle of influence is from that culture? If you're looking at um, adopting a child from a mixed race and there's no one in your life that is, you know, brown skin, I'm like, oh, you, you, you need to grow some friends. Where are you going to church? Where, where do you live? Okay, your barber is not going to be their barber. Your hairdresser is not going to be their hairdresser. So there's going to be some shifts and to have shifts, there needs to be planning. And so how are you preparing yourself to care for a child who doesn't look like you? And it's, it's not something that you're going to do all everything overnight, a quick pass. Oh, we just put it in the bag and it's whoop, whoop, it's we're, we're together. No, it's about carefully thinking about it, planning. If you're going to be a mixed race family, you need to be, you're going to, you're not going to just have a mixed race child. You are going to be a mixed race family. So your family is now changing. And if they're not thinking that, they need to stop and slow down their role and um, have some more conversations and more importantly, have conversations with the Lord and ask God, okay, God, is this what you're asking me to say yes to? And if God is asking them to say yes to that, he will provide them. He will provide them with resources, um, conversations to have. And yes, it might mean changing churches. And it might be meaning mean that you move to a different community where there's children who look like families that look like your child. That, that You have to have conversations about that because everybody's budget isn't equal. 
And so it's like, oh, we've lived in this neighborhood for the past 20 years. We're not moving. Well, well, what does that mean for your child? Are you going to drive the extra miles so that they have the experiences that are rich for their culture? How are you going to embrace their culture in grade school, in middle school, in high school? How are you going to embrace their color, caring for their skin, coloring, um, caring for their hair? All those things make a difference. There was a time when I didn't, if I saw some, you know, families that clearly had adopted because the kids didn't look the same as the parents, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think it was controversial. I just thought, oh, wonderful. They, these parents adopted these children. Great. And then went about minding my own business. But the topic has kind of come to our conversation or come to our attention at FBT because there's been some nasty things said online. And I know the Twitter world and the social media world isn't necessarily what's going on in real life, but particularly minority influencers, people, talking heads, thinkers, supposedly, I don't think they're really thinking when they say stuff like this, who will straight up say white people should not adopt uh, ethnic minorities. But is there any evidence that whatsoever that children suffer at greater numbers when they're, they're not the same ethnicity as their parents, because you'd think that would, if that were the case, then you'd think that would also apply to, to parent or to children that are with their biological parents, but they're mixed, right? So they don't actually exactly fit either of their bio parents either. Uh, and so I've never personally seen any evidence that, you know, a black child that gets adopted by white parents suffers or struggles more on average than a black child that gets adopted by black parents. But maybe that data is out there and I, I've never seen it before. What are your thoughts about that? I don't think I've seen any data that says a child of color um, struggles more when they are adopted by a Caucasian family. What I can tell you from conversations that I've had with young people who were raised by Caucasian families, they love their families. They love their mom. They love their dads. But they said, but they didn't do this thing well. They, they, they isolated me or they insulated me. My siblings and every, they treated, my family treated me well. But outside of my family, I didn't share with them that people in the community, when they weren't with me, didn't, they treated me differently when my family wasn't with me than when my family was with me. Remember I said earlier about you don't get to um, pass on your white privilege to a child of color. When they're young, you're with them all the time. You're on the playground, you're at the swimming pool. When they get older, they're doing things more independently. And so they're likely to not be with you when they're in a store, um, when they're at the community pool. And so it's like, well, what are you doing here? Well, I've been coming here for the past 10 years you know, to the swimming pool. Well, you don't belong here. And it's like, well, yes, I do. My parents pay my pass for me to be here. Well, um, you're, you're not, you know, you're not one of us, so you need to leave. Well, what's the likelihood that that child is going to go home and tell their parent, well, I didn't go swimming today because they told me I wasn't wanted. I, I shouldn't be there. They're probably going to say something like, you know, I just decided I didn't want to swim today. And in fact, I don't want to go back. 
a wise parent would do some more investigating about why why the turnaround swimming has been there a part of something they've done you know all the time so why the change why the change in behavior um do they see their child withdrawing and so it's like no something's happened you might not want to tell me about it now but we are going to discuss this and and give them time and space to be able to share that they've been hurt okay i think that it really behooves fam caucasian families to have a cultural navigator really and and people who look like their kid who can have con those courageous conversations with with their kid that they trust and respect when i was um, raising my daughter there were people who were in my circle of influence that i trusted implicitly that if they had a conversation with my kid i knew they weren't giving her wrong guidance every family has those people in their circle and so when you're a caucasian family and you have a child of color you want to have um people who look like your kid in that circle so that that child has the freedom to have those conversations that they might not say you know have with their own family um and i know that's hard you know well my kid tells me everything no they don't <laughs> they tell you lots of things but they don't tell you everything and so i i honestly you you know if the world were perfect and which it's not children of color would be with families of color children who are caucasian would be with caucasian families you would be with your family your birth the family that birthed you but because of sin because of evil it got mixed up and so when families who are who are families of color adopt caucasian children they have an education to do too they they don't know everything about what it means to be caucasian they don't that, that child doesn't quite fit in into the you know the you know black culture they have to be educated what's the conversation when i was coming up it was that you know you're seen be seen and you know don't say anything cuz you know child has its place you have to learn what what the norms are in in your culture and so whether you're a caucasian family or a black family how do you teach your child the norms one of your family that you're being raised in but the norms of their culture from where they came from because they will have to go back at some point and be a part of that culture and you want that you're you don't want your child ostracized you don't want them being told you you you're you're not black you're not black enough and you're not white enough so you don't fit in anywhere no cuz that you're that's their psyche that's that's a tear on their their self-worth and their self-being remind them first of all that they're a child of the most high king and that god has put them here for a purpose and they are going to live out that destiny and as their parents whether you're caucasian or black how can i help you live out your destiny and your purpose how can i prepare and equip you to do that so when i think about oh well, gosh do black kids it's okay for them to be with the white family yes i would rather see them with the white family than no family i'd rather see white kids with black families than no family because who do you belong to who where do you see your how do you learn that you have an identity in christ who who's there to advocate for you 
Who's there to, to mentor you and coach you and, and to remind you that make good choices, that you are somebody and that, you, you know, you're a child of the king. You're not a child of, the, of Satan. You know, because if your parents don't parent you, the gang will parent you, the street will parent you. And our kids don't need that, nor do they deserve that, whatever shade of color they are. Right, exactly. And I do want to I want to say two things. One, I have seen it not as frequently, but I have seen it the other way around. Right. Like you said, with a with a black family that has adopted a white child and this black family that adopted a white child, their social media influencing family they have an Instagram page and all that kind of stuff. And she gets, the mother gets like raked over the coals in the comments sometimes of people telling her that she, why aren't you adopting black children? And, and she just says, this is the child that God gave me. You know, this was the child where the timing was right. We were looking to adopt. This was the child that was available. I felt that God was calling me to adopt her. So that's what we, that's what we did. So in my opinion, correct answer, 10 out of 10. And she should tell people to mind their own business. So I, I want to be fair. It does happen in both directions, right? People getting, parents getting flack for not adopting the correct race when really race is made up. It's not a, it's not a biblical term. <laughs> We're all in the human race. We're all image bearers of God. So that's correct. You know, Connie, when people say, well, how come black people aren't adopting? You know, I, I go back to my years of being in child welfare. It wasn't easy for families of color to get through the process of, st of state government to be able to adopt a child, okay? That was in the foster care system. They were disqualified for little or no reasons at all. And, and that varies from state to state. The other thing is when you think about um, families of color, that they are more likely to be also doing kinship care. There are lots of grandmothers and grandfather, grandparents and aunts and uncles who are raising other children in the fam of the family. Okay. And so you know, every state has requirements about how many children can be in the home before you can welcome in another child. When you're in your family, I slept in the same bed with my sister. Okay. Now I have several sisters. We had several beds, but there's like two of us in a bed. And when it comes to foster care, you can't do that. Each child has to have its own, their own bed. Even in adoption, each child has to have their own bed, um, th their licensing criteria. And so it's not that families of color are not interested in adopting, but there are, there are criteria that has to be met. Uh, um, square footage is an issue in the home. Um, all those licensing things add extra requirements to a family who might be thinking about welcoming a child in. And depending on where, where they are in the country, every state has its own licensing requirements. And so in some states, it's easier for a, any family, first of all, to foster and then and or adopt. And in some states, it's harder for um, families of color to be able to step forward and be able to care for another child. So when you said that black families 
were getting disqualified for various reasons. It wasn't necessarily because the system was racist. Against, are you saying there was actual legitimate racism against them, or there was just these regulations and these standards that black families were struggling to hit because they were in lower income brackets or something like that? All of the above. Do you think that's still the case today? Um, racism within the system preventing black families or any ethnic minority family from adopting? I would like to believe, Connie, that racism is no longer a factor. Trust me, there's enough other there are enough other issues that would keep families who would otherwise have a heart to welcome a child in um, that prevents them from being able to care for another child. Do you think there needs to be a call out to the black community to for more families to, to at least consider adoption? Or is it just there's enough families that are interested and we maybe need to just reform the system a bit so these families who want to adopt can? Well, there's always room for reform. Um, sometimes there's more paperwork than there needs to be. So the reduction of paperwork is <laughs> would be helpful. But I also think that there needs to be a greater awareness about the need. Um, children who are right there in your backyard that are going to school with your children, or if you're an empty nester um, that are right there in your community, they need um, a, a forever mom, a forever dad. They need family. They not just need, they want. These children want to belong, to be connected to a family. And if the families who, um, you know, we are a me, my, and mine society. If we could just say, you know what, God, how would you use my family to make a difference in the life of a vulnerable child? And for some families, that will mean that God's calling them to foster. For other families, it means that God's calling them to adopt. And other families, God's saying, you know what? Mm-mm. You're, you're, you're not that kind of kid family. You, you, you just barely made it through with the ones you had. So how about you pay for the cheerleading uniform? How about you buy the cleats for the football or soccer team? Uh, um, the child who wants to play soccer. How about you buy the gift cards and take the foster mom or the adoptive mom out for coffee? How about you agree to, oh, you're a great baker. How about you make an extra meal every week and, and take it to the family so that that day of the week they don't cook? What if you could run errands, you know, for the family? Whatever gift and skill or talent you have, that you would say, you know what, I want to put that to work to make a difference in the life of the families who are called to foster, who are called to adopt. I'm willing to do those things. And if everybody did their part, children would know that they are loved and needed and wanted and they would be well cared for. I do think that the church has a critical role in that. And I'm, I'm, I don't mean just the Baptists or just the Catholics or just the Lutherans or the Methodists or the Assemblies of God. I'm talking about the big C church. Every church member, every pew warmer, every age and stage of people in the church, that there is something that they can do to make a difference in the life of the vulnerable children in their community. And if the church stepped in, I think that the children in their communities would know that they are somebody and that um, their lives have an opportunity to flourish and to grow and to be the children that God has called them to be. But I think the church is the answer. 
I have to uh, agree. And again, I I said this before we we got on and, and started recording this and some of our back and forth beforehand that I've also heard, and this could just be urban legend myth, I'm not sure, that, you know, if every Christian family adopted, or then, then there would be no more children left in the foster care system. Now, what is the definition of a Christian family? You know, a lot of people identify as Christian, but they haven't stepped in church for 10 years or whatever. So I understand <laughs> there's some nuance to even calling yourself a Christian family or not Christian family. But where is the church mm-hmm. falling falling short and, and where are they not falling short? Maybe Maybe it's the Catholic church is very involved in adoption and, you know, Episcopalians are not, or I don't know, but what, what do you see in terms of when, when you're kind of giving your critique of, of the American church, what needs to change? I think that the church sometimes can be very inward facing and there are other church, other ministries that are very outward facing. And when I say inward facing there, it's everything that's going on. Everything happens only in our church. And if you're a member, it's in our, in our church and we serve you, we serve you. Churches that are very outward-facing, they are very community-minded. They are social justice-minded, typically. They are aware of the of kids who are who are vulnerable in, in their community. They have uh, resources that minister not only to the people in their church, church but to people who are outside in, in their community within a certain radius. Um, I think that churches. Every church has a mission. Every church has its vision. And so, uh, you know, when I talk to leaders, you know, I, what is your, what is the vision for your church? What is the mission? And so it's like, well, we want to, we want to grow people to know about the, you know, to be a part of the body of Christ. Every child in foster care is a potential child who could be a part of the body of Christ. Every foster family who um, is caring for vulnerable children needs a community that wraps around, supports them um, so that they can be the best foster parent they can be to the children that they're caring for, whether they care for them for 24 hours or they care for them for three and a half years before they get to go back home to their biological family. Every adoptive family, whether they adopted domestically or internationally or adopted a child from the foster care system, Every adoptive family needs support, needs people wrapping supportive services around them. Every kinship family, every grandmother, every aunt who takes in a child, one of their um, relatives, because, you know, unfortunately drugs are, you know, running rampant. Every kinship family needs people who will be there for them, to love them and support them while they're working to love those love the children who they're caring for and so if everybody helped it would make a difference and I just think of the church as the first aid station that that's the place where you can come and it's supposed to be a place of refuge for those who are seeking who are in need every child who's in the foster care system has been impacted by trauma they are in need every foster family or adoptive family who's caring for a child from a trauma background those families are in need when a church says you know what we're going to have we have daycare we have a folk we have a clothing closet we have a a food bank we have a, a, a school that children who are coming into those churches with their foster families boy you know 
any little thing can trigger them. Smells trigger them. Sounds trigger them. Boy, if churches have sensory rooms, and I realize, you know what? A church that has 50 members, they're not going to likely have a sensory room. I, I totally get it. They're likely not going to have a daycare or a school associated with their church. But they have members in their church who are vibrant and alive, and they can be connected to other churches or to, to the local foster parent association or to the local adoptive uh, support group. And they can wrap supportive services around others in their community so that they're giving back. And when everybody is doing, like, as I said, everybody can do something. What is that something that you are called to do to make a difference in the, in the life of a child and in the lives of the people who are caring for the children. I honestly believe, Connie, if birth families got the help that they needed, the foster care system would not be the system that it is today. Overwhelmed with children, overwhelmed with children whose parents are in so, so many of them come from households where the parent was uh, traumatized and abused and neglected themselves. As we started this off with hurting people hurt people. So if you're a hurting mama, you're a hurting daddy, and you have children and finances are tough, you're living on the edge, gosh, any, any little thing could bring, push you over the brink. If you don't have help, bad things can happen in your home, okay? And that's anybody of any color, any race, okay? But when the community, when the church stands up and says, I'm here for you, wherever you are in your, your, in your journey in life, birth family, kinship family, foster family, adoptive family, you get the help and support that you need. You get that prayer support. Come go to church with me. Let us love on you. Let us show you about the goodness of the Lord. Let, 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 the, let, the, let the word marinate in your heart and in your mind and show you that you, you do matter. You are, you are worth something. You are worthy to be loved. You are worthy to be cared for. That's what some of these young girls need to know is you are worthy. You don't have to be who they say you are. That the words that people are speaking to you make a difference and that's why our children who are in the foster care system, they need foster families who know, love God, know, love, and serve God. Why? So that the people are speaking words of life into those young children. And by speaking words of life, it will negate all the negative messages they got from other people before they got into that home. Absolutely. Um, one thing that my church has started doing very pretty recently is basically they've decided that no child associated with the church, uh, you know, if their parents are members or even if, if they have foster parents that are taking care of their education, that every single child can go to private school, Christian private school. Mm -hmm. The church mm -hmm. is going to help fund that. I think, I think they do currently a hundred percent because they haven't been overwhelmed yet. You know, if there was so many children that needed it, it might be become 50% scholarships or something like that. Uh, and my church is pretty healthy. Uh, it grew a lot during COVID. And so, you know, obviously I understand that, that it's going to change church to church, what they're able to do, but wow, what a, 
if you're a family that wants to raise your children in the church and you want them to have be taught a, a biblical worldview and then you're thinking well I can't afford to send them you know to the school that I want to send them to because I already have three kids and and then the church steps in I just when my church started doing that I just said yes that is so amazing for the families at our church um so we are getting close to an hour here about time to wrap it up but I did I just have to mention one of my favorite movies, Instant Family, which I know for a fact has inspired some people I know to look into adopting. So what a cultural phenomenon that that movie was. What a wonderful thing it did. And it has this hilarious scene in it. You've seen Instant Family. Yeah. yeah. How could you I not in your, in your line of work? How could you not see Instant Family? It's the movie with uh, Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne for people who may not know. And they're obviously a white couple and they're looking to adopt and they're meeting with the, the social workers and the the social workers are sort of presenting them different children and and they aren't white, white kids. And the Mark Wahlberg, he says, well, I don't want to be seen as a, as a white savior, you know, and they go, okay, we'll make sure to write whites only on your application. He's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying either. So it's just, it's very hilariously making the point that a lot of white couples feel sort of trapped, damned if they do, damned if they don't, I think, when ultimately they just want to adopt a child and they're trying to do the right thing. When you say that in an ideal world, white children would go with white families, black children would go with black, Chinese Chinese kids would go with Chinese families, et cetera, et cetera. What would you advise couples, really any couple that's looking to potentially adopt a child that doesn't match their ethnic background? How long should they, should they wait or not wait? You know, because I look at this, I, I have adoption on my heart and I'm addicted to this website called the Pacific Northwest Adoption Exchange. I just go look at it sometimes. I'm not in a point where I can adopt yet. Uh, but if folks, if you're listening and you're in Alaska, Oregon, or Washington, that's a great resource if you're considering adoption. And, and minorities are overrepresented on the site. You can see profiles of children. So if you want a child fast and you're a white couple, you if you are open to taking an, an ethnic minority, you will likely get a child faster, right? But should they, should they wait? Should they kind of see, you know, how, what's the line that they need to balance? Especially because a lot of these families aren't Christian, unfortunately. And so it's, it's not going to be something that they're necessarily going to be taking up with the Lord and trying to get guidance from him. So what would you advise both secular and Christian couples who are nervous about adopting an ethnic mi- minority only because of what they're they're afraid of what the culture will come at them with not necessarily they they don't necessarily care internally but they're worried about outside critique well i hope they are worried about out, that outward critique because that will impact their children and so families who um, are willing to take a child to have a child into their home um, of any race or ethnicity, um, it, it goes all, all the way back to something called motivation. What is your motivation to adopt? And if you're honest with yourself, I, if you say, I, I know we are entering this journey because we are supposed to parent children. We want to open our hearts, open our home, we want to love them. We want to educate them. We want to to pour into them. We an opportunity to grow with them and to to cry with them. And boy, 
to help shape them and help them shape us. Because if you think you're going to adopt and you're not going to be changed, you, you got another story coming because you are going to be changed if you, when you welcome that child in. Whatever their background is, some children have less or more trauma, you know, that they've been impacted by. But what is your motivation to do this? And if you're honest with yourself, that's where it starts. And then as you're honest, say, okay, what is, you, you know, there are checklists out there. And I do encourage people to go to our website, waitnomore.org, waitnomore.org. And there's a, a place on our website that says getting started. Go to that, click on that and see what it takes to get started. And in there, you're going to see, you're going to see information about what's your motivation? Why, why do this? If this is, oh, I just, I just want to, you know, help this little person and, oh yes. And then it's going to be a new mini, mini me. No, stop. Get you a dog, get you a cat, get a goldfish, get a parrot. Nope. Mm -mm. But if you really want to invest in, in your personal growth and in the growth of a child, you really want to help be a part of change, changing you and changing them. You really want to give a child an opportunity to have, um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about Rolls Royce or Mercedes Benz or, or Lamborghini, you know, to have a, 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 what do they call that? The little um, scooter that you pedal with your foot, you put one foot on and, and you, um, and you push with the other foot, you know, old school. Yeah. Just a scooter. Yeah. Helped a kid to learn how to ride a bike and to, to go for walks, to go hiking, to, to, to be interested in science and math and to read and to fan the flame in that child. You want to be a part of that? Then get started. Go to the website. Begin to have courageous conversations with people. Do your homework. And then you got some more questions? On our website, it gives you a place to send me an email. You got some questions? Ask your questions. I'd be more than happy to respond to your questions and get back with you. And if you'd like to even talk with you on the phone, this is this is something that's going to change your life and change the life of a child. And it is a lifetime journey. They're kids who are in the foster care system. They are not a project. It's not something you can, that you start and stop. These are children's lives. This is your life, but your life coupled with their life can make a family. Oof. That's, that's a, that's a good period right there, Sharon. That's wonderful. And that checklist is is so good because I think everyone thinks they have great motivations, right? But if they're actually pressed, if they're actually forced to answer some of these questions and think deeply, they might discover that, okay, I'm not ready to adopt right now or maybe ever, or maybe adoption isn't the right path for me. It's, foster, it's just being a foster parent or whatever the case may be. So that checklist is such mm -hmm. a genius idea. So with that... With that wonderful closing statement from you, we're going to do our speed round, some fun questions, some lighter stuff, and then we'll give you one more chance to put out your final thoughts and we'll, and we'll close it out from there. Okay, so 10 questions. You try to answer them as quick as you can. There's no right or wrong answer. Here we go. The Black Panther or Blade? Oh, back. Black Panther. MLK or Malcolm X? MLK. Are golfers athletes? Yes, they are. 
Should we tear down statues of slaveholders? Oh, yes. Very much so. <laughs> what is your go-to mixed drink? Um, root beer and um, vanilla ice cream. <laughs> what is your favorite board game? Monopoly. What's the best book you've read this year so far? You can't say the Bible. <gasps> I was going to say, well, that, that's always a go-to. <laughs> but I, I read a, oh, dang, I'm going to have to remember. Um, fostering? Missional Fostering. Okay. We'll be sure to li we'll link that one in the show notes so pe other people can read it too. Black or African-American? African-American. What is the best part of waking up? Being able to say, thank you, God, for waking me up today. What is your will for my day? And should the United States keep daylight saving time? Yes. That's our 10 questions. Kind of fun. It's, it's <laughs> people, I have a list of about 50 questions. And so there's always overlap in every episode, but it'll be fun as we do more and more of these to maybe eventually tally the responses to the different questions and see overall, does MLK win or Malcolm X, Black Panther, or Blade, you know, those kinds of things. It'll be fun down the road. Anyways, thank you for, for humoring me and answering those questions. Do you have any final thoughts, last plugs, anything you want to get off your chest before we close it out? I think my last plug is this. No child deserves to be, um, no child deserves to live life without love, the love of family. If you are willing to put aside our selfishness and willing to embrace this special question, God, how would you use me and the gift of my family to make a difference in the life of a child? And once you ask God that question, listen intently for how he responds to you and be willing to give him the response back. Yes. He will open the door for you to go and get the information that you need to do just what he's asked you to do. He is faithful and he loves you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on, Sharon. It's been a pleasure. There were so many more questions I could have asked you. So somewhere down the road, we're going to have to have you on again. I just can't thank you enough. And I look forward to continuing to, to follow your work and to use Focus on the Family overall as a resource. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Connie, again for having me on your program. I appreciate it. The number you have dialed. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free